This is the Horse Radio Network. Well, hi, auditors. Welcome to this auditor exclusive. going to be doing many more of these and putting them out on this special auditor feed. We ask that you please not share this feed address with anybody. Uh, we only want it uh, for exclusively for auditors who, who are helping support the Horse Radio Network. So this particular sound file is the rest of Jennifer's interview, the fascinating interview she did about DNA and genetics testing. You heard part of it on Horses in the Morning, but that wasn't all. It went on for a good 15 minutes long longer than that, and we had to cut it down for Horses in the Morning, but I know a lot of you were fascinated by it, and I think that you would like to hear the rest of it, so as an auditor exclusive, we're going to give you the rest of it, and we're going to try and do that with more and more of the interviews that we have to cut down for Horses in the Morning. We'll give you the rest of it here on the auditor page. Thank you for helping support all of us at the Horse Radio Network. I'm so happy to welcome to the show... Krista Lafayette, who is the CEO and founder of a little outfit called Etalon Diagnostics. You all the time see people posting on social media that they got their DNA testing on their horses and all the great information it gave them. And then there's little question marks and comments going, well, what does that mean? And how did that happen? So Krista is here and she's going to hopefully answer some of that. So welcome to the show, Krista. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And, and um, I really thank you, you know, for the opportunity to uh, join your show, which is fantastic. And to talk a little bit more about Geeky Jeans and Horses. Geeky Jeans. Oh, what a great name for a reigning horse. Geeky Jeans. G-E-N-E-S. <laughs> oh, that's great. So let's. why don't we start out with a little background, Krista. You are CEO and founder of Etalon Diagnostics. What led you to get this whole thing started? You had to have been a horse girl. I am. I'm hardcore. Yes, definitely. <laughs> I'm afflicted with the disease that is uh, the horse, uh, the horse gene. We call it in our lab. And um, I hit the ground and wanted horses. We did not have them uh, in my family. We weren't fortunate enough to be able to afford a uh, barn or horses or anything like that. People kept trying to give me dolls and other boring toys like that. I just wanted horses. So yes, I understand. Girl. Yeah, you go girl. <laughs> so fast forward. As an adult, were you finally able to achieve your dream of getting close to the horse hair? You know, I was one of those people where um, I would ride horses at any opportunity or be close to them growing up as a kid. I would sneak under fences, ride random horses in fields. In college, I rode polo. Uh, Polo was fun, but I really didn't know anything about polo. I just knew it involved horses, so I rode them. Um, and later in life, after I had a sort of a career under my belt and, um, I had built a couple of biotech, uh, successful projects, I finally realized I could afford my own horse. So I did, I jumped right in as fast as I possibly could. I was so excited and it was the best thing I did ever. So now you've got your horses and you love your horsey and you, and you get to give them smooches. The next thing happens, Etalon Diagnostics, what provoked you to do this so because uh, obviously you have a very successful career going and now you're going to j- venture out on the onto the entrepreneurial trail again and start this business well i think the way to explain it is that this company was born out of experience that i went through with my own horses um 
when I went to buy a horse, I started with stallions and that that's another story altogether. And I was super excited to learn, you know, all about them, how they behaved, why they behaved the way they did. I'm into animal sciences. And so that was sort of uh, my focal point. But along the way, the registries for each of the horses demanded that I did DNA testing on them, which made me super excited. I went, oh, my God, I can't believe this. They actually do this in horses? And so I went ahead to um, conduct the DNA testing in my horses. And it was really disappointing and overwhelming expensive and took way too long. So that was sort of my first dipping my toes in the water with science and horses formally. And I don't know if you've had that experience. Have you have you ever done DNA testing with your horses? I have never done DNA testing for my horses, but that sounds like it was a pretty miserable process and it sounds like lots of people need to do it. Yeah, it, many of the registries actually are requiring it now and it it is it is with good intentions. They want to obviously test for parentage to make sure that that foal that you have comes from said sire and said dam. And that's the very simplest of, of DNA testing. But now there are several groups, registries in particular, like the American Paint Horse Association, um, the American Quarter Horse Association. And I believe the warm blood folks are starting to sort of shine a light on it. There are definitely specific diseases that you can detect um, in the genes early on so that you'll know how to deal with them, how to steer clear of them, how to treat for them, um, and, and all around sort of benefit the horse by preparedness and education. So DNA testing is sort of coming to light now. People are understanding it, if not on their own, but by the uh, requirement by the registry or their um, competitive organization or even their veterinarian. So it's it's sort of becoming a thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's becoming a So it's... It's not just people who are curious about whether or not their horse really is a draft standard bred cross. It's oftentimes a requirement for registration, but it's it's the technology has evolved so far now that there's all kinds of things that I can tell us besides who mom and dad are. So what are the what are the, some of the things that the genetic testing in particular that Edelon does that it, it can tell us nowadays? Well, it's, it's actually quite mind-boggling. Um, so Edelon, the, 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 one of the base principles for our company it was to create a large-scale, commercially-funded equine research platform. Because in the industry where equine research is, is created, funded, and um, conducted, <clears throat> excuse me, there, there is quite a funding shortage. Because most of the things that are studied in horses are done in the academic environment. And there are a lot of super smart academic folks out there who have these great laboratories and really wonderful people, but they are sort of forced to get scrappy and beg for funding to do any kind of project. So they have to come up with an idea, then they have to submit a grant, then they have to hope they get the grant, then once they have the grant, they have to wait for the samples to come in, then they have to write the paper, work with students, which is fantastic, but often takes a long time, then the paper is published, and oftentimes that finding is never translated to a useful uh, method for the horse people. In other words, they, they discover something and the paper is filed away in a drawer and no one ever offers it or translates it or mm. uses it. Or uses it for any good. That's one of our favorite things to do on the Horses in the Morning show is our studies show, where you look at stuff and go, okay, they did that study, but now what? So but now what? It, the, exactly. The horse industry is the same way. Okay, <laughs> we did the study, but now what do we do to do with it? So 
what was your solution to that problem? So what I thought about was looking at some of the biotech companies that I have worked with here um, in in California and my own um, uh, consulting company, we are based on a, a network solution. In other words, people might come to me, my expertise is around preclinical behavioral and surgical models. So people might come to me and say, hey, this is just an example, but can you do a model of, of, of xenotransplantation in sheep? And I might say, yeah, sure, I'll come and help you. But they might say, well, could you do it in a gorilla? And I might have to say, um, I've never done it in a gorilla. And I could either A, try to do it and see how it turns out. And and we might get lucky, which is probably not a good idea. Or I can call such and such at USEF um, and say, hey, so we need somebody with expertise in this region, and we have a client here who wants to do this medical model. Why don't we contact the person who, who built this model and really knows how to do it? And while I might not get anything personally out of recommending that person and solving that problem, I don't get monetary gain. I don't um, charge for their services. But what ends up happening is my group becomes the resource we may not be able to help you with this, but we know who can, and we will find it for you. And Edelon is sort of that, that same kind of idea. We want to build a company around collaboration. And within the horse space, there are a lot of people who want to study horses, but the funds are short, and it's very hard to do. So we thought, why don't we make it a little bit easier for the folks that are required to do testing where people were curious about their horses and design this very large comprehensive platform that has a whole bunch of genetic variants tested on it and then collaborate with the academics. And if we can create it in a way that it's affordable for everyone, but there's still a little money left in there for research, the pie is big enough. We can share it. And what ends up happening is you get a crowdsourced scientific platform and everybody wins. The people get their tests for their horses. They don't have to pick and choose. It's a super easy, I'll do this one, and it will tell me everything I need to know, rather than I can do this one, then I can do this one, then I can do this test, then I can do that test. And the academic scientist has resources. They have ability to look through data. They can access um, um, the owners of the horses with consent. They can reach out to the horse, to horse owners and say, hey, is your horse fast? Is it tall? Is it red? Is it, is it friendly? And they can conduct their research, and the money comes in from people who want to do this, voluntary, and want to talk about their horses. And everybody gets what they need. Everybody gets publications. Everybody gets advancements in science. And at the end of the day, if we find genetic variants in the horse on an accelerated, affordable platform, those same genetics, mammalian genetics, translate to other species, including humans. And we don't have to keep animals in a laboratory to do it. So, so it helps everyone. It, it's a very wide-reaching process, really. It's a big net. It's a big net. So drilling it down a little bit more, I want to get genetic testing done on my horse. What are the things that I'm going to learn besides who his mommy and daddy are? What are the things I can learn? Oh, it's, um, that's a... <laughs> Well, maybe some of the That's most common net, things right there. <laughs> yeah, the most common things. So the simple things, if I was going to categorize them, let's say let's say you went out in the barn and you, you whispered sweet nothings in your horse's ear and you pulled out the tail hair and you sent it in and you ordered our, our flagship service, which would just be the DNA. We call it the mini panel, sort of tongue-in-cheek, because it's about 55 tests on <laughs> one. 
<laughs> so we thought mini panel was sort of funny. But anyway, um, you would find out things like the colors that are involved in your horse's coat, including those you can see and those you can't see. You would find out things about disease and health markers, things like, does my horse carry GBET? Does it carry HERDA? Does it carry warm blood fragile pole syndrome? You might find out things that are um, directly causing your horse issues, things like PSSM or HYPP. These are these are issues that horses have that sometimes go unnoticed for a while until they have an attack or, or ongoing lameness or problems, and the vet sees it and kind of scratches his head and goes, you know what, I think, I think we may have a problem here. And in some cases, these things are easily fixed with feed or exercise or different, different um, preventative measures you can use once you know the horse has it. And then there are fun things, things like speed disposition. Is your horse a sprint type? Is it an endurance type horse or is it somewhere in between? And what about things like temperament or gait? Um, there are, there's almost no limit to the number of things we can start looking at with a horse. But the bottom line is when we run tests in the laboratory, we can learn a lot based on what's been done in the publications and the things that we've found in our own studies, but we can learn a heck of a lot more by asking you because you know your horse better than anyone. And that's the key. That's what's been missing. So, so go, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, it's okay. I was just going to say that the point to this isn't to find what necessarily what's wrong with your horse, which is kind of unfortunately what the genre for genetic testing has been. What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? Right. We want to know what's right with your horse. Why does your horse suit you or not suit you? What is it that your horse does that you just love? And what are the things you see in this line of animals that you want to promote and, and carry forth? What kinds of things do you want to continue breeding into your animals? Those are the things we're looking for. So it, it's going to be useful for breeders in addition to just everyday horse folks. Definitely. It's all about fit. What do you want to do? Let's look at, for example, a, a, a jumper. Everybody says that they want that million-dollar horse. Well, what is a million-dollar horse? Well, some people will say a million-dollar horse is a horse that can jump two meters from a dead standstill. And sure, that's true. In most cases, that's a multi-million-dollar horse if you can ride it. But for me, an adult amateur, a million-dollar horse for me jumps two to three feet and packs me around all day long without killing me. That's Yay! a million-dollar horse. <laughs> you know that horse. I know that horse. And that's the horse I want. I love to watch the other million dollar horse, but I can't ride that horse. <laughs> right. So what are some of the things that a genetic testing and as the as the technology stands today, what are some of the things that it's not gonna tell us? Like we all watch CSI, right? <laughs> What are the things that they completely make up that genetic testing is not going to tell you? Oh, no, it's all true. You can tell everything in about 15 minutes about every person and what their motivation <laughs> was and how many people they killed and why they did it. It's absolutely, no, it's nonsense. Um, genetic testing can tell us what's in the blueprints of the animal. What things are contributed from each parent to that horse that it has that's, that's hard and fast. You have the genes for this coat color. You have the genes for this speed disposition, but let's look at things that you have the genetics for, but may or may not come to pass, like height, okay? Let's say a foal is born and it has uh, the genetic variants that contribute to a very tall horse, and there are several of those, but it gets sick 
or it has an injury or it just ends up with some sort of life circumstance where it doesn't get enough food or it gets the wrong kind of food. That horse may have the genes to become 18 hands tall, but at the end of the day only made it to 16 too. Does that make sense? Try, I'm, I'm, you, hmm. do another one. <laughs> <laughs> another one. Let's see. Cause um, are, is, okay. is this, so, is this all about what, what the genes are versus the genes expression? Is that what we're, we're dealing with here? Sure. So we can back up and say something like your genotype versus your phenotype. So your genotype are the genes that you have, what's in your DNA, what the four base pairs around that region look like. And phenotype is what you express, what other people can see, the colors you actually manifest, the the height you actually manifest, um, the diseases you do or do not get. For instance, um, you may have a predisposition genetically to um, a certain kind of flu or virus. Norovirus is a good example. I use that as an example all the time because it's well known that specific diseases prefer certain individuals based on their blood type or their tissue type or their genotype. Oh, that's terrible. But now you've just confirmed Glenn's... Oh, my husband's been saying that for years. (laughs) Oh, this is bad. Okay, go ahead. (laughs) I'm sorry. Did I accidentally prove a husband right? I did not mean to do that. Yes. Yes, I'm, it's okay. It's you science. know, you can edit this. It's you okay. can edit this. It'll be our secret. <laughs> <laughs> so there are there are diseases that you are more or less uh, susceptible to, right? And and you may or may not know that. If you've done some genetic testing yourself, you may suspect that you you are susceptible to norovirus. But the only way you're going to find out, unfortunately, is when you're on that cruise ship. And norovirus breaks out. You're going to find out real fast how susceptible you are. So you can be genetically predisposed to an illness, but you may never see that manifest if you aren't exposed to the illness. Ah, gotcha. I see. But can't can, will genetic testing tell me whether or not I have a triple crown contender? Well, that's a, that's a complicated algorithm of genes, right? So many, many people are working on that. They want to know what is it that makes this horse a triple crown winner. Right now, we have little pieces of that. For instance, we know that horses that have a heterozygosity, meaning two different variants in the myostatin region, they test for one copy of sprint and one copy of endurance. We know that those horses win at all three distances over their siblings that have two copies of sprint or two copies of endurance. We know that that is statistically the magic combination if you're going for the triple crown. We know that certain horses have to have um, a lack of disease. We know that certain horses have to have a certain height or a size and that those are all advantages. But do we know what the magic combination is end all be all? No, we don't. We also can't control for who's training and riding that horse. Right? So, There are a lot of factors at play that create a champion. Some of them are genetic and some of them are non-genetic or environmental. Who's handling the horse? What are they being fed? What are their life experiences? And ultimately, at this point, genetic tests do not test for heart. Right. The heart in the the, uh, emotional sense. In the spiritual sense. In the spiritual sense. Well, that makes... the horse's desire to win and and try harder. So those are some of the things that it can't tell us. And one of the, the, the final thing I kind of want to touch on real quick here is 
one of the most common things that people want to learn is, I'm going to use my air quotes, their horse's ancestry. They have fluffy, the brown, quarter horse-ish looking horse. They really don't mm-hmm. know anything about his history. He's eight years old. The people they bought him from, oh, he's a paint quarter horse cross from right. Bloodline XYZ. So they want to do a <laughs> genetic test to find out what what breed of horse he really is. And then they get this little piece of paper back. What does that really tell us? And what do all those numbers mean? Because sometimes they have, it says standard bread in there. It's like, now wait a minute, he's a paint cross. Why does it say standard bread in there? How does that whole thing work? So that is a whole, whole can of worms. So we recently started offering a service we call Ancestry. And we are very careful. It is not a breed test. Because the problem with breed is that in theory and in practice uh, often, unfortunately, a group of people can get together and decide to name a breed, slap down some money on a table and register a horse. And it's a breed. That has nothing to do with their genetics. Now, that's not the case in, in many of these quote-unquote breeds, but we all know that a a great deal of the popular horses today are a mix of different lineages to create that, just like dogs. There are new dog breeds all the time, and they don't spontaneously crawl out of the ocean. They're created from breeds that exist, right? Right. So what you want to do is you want to take a reference population. You start from point A. Okay, we had this wonderful group called Peterson. At all, it's a group of investigators, and they wrote a, a basis of, of horse ancestry um, publication where they took samplings of different quote-unquote breeds from around the world, and they defined them genetically. That is a fabulous place to start. Now you know that the Mangalarga horses who came from this region, they genetically looked like this. And the horses that came from the Far East or the Near East, whichever terminology you like to use, the Arabians, they look like this. And the thoroughbreds who originated out of England and have had a closed stud book for a couple hundred years, they look like this. But what about everybody else? Well, it's interesting. When you look around the world, you'll see different patterns of, of horse, quote-unquote, breeds, but really, we look at it as a, as a composition and a purpose. What did the horse do and what kinds of genes did it need to do those things? For instance, we have a group we call European heavy horses, which is a fancy word for draft-ish. And included in that group would be things like Percheron, Shire, and Clydesdale. These horses are big boned. They're larger. They're heavier. Think of feathers. Think of, of work horses. Heavy um, strong, maybe not so fast, but pretty hardy with strong feet and good bones for carrying heavy people, for pulling plows, for pulling carriages, that sort of thing. Then we have what we call the North Sea horses. These are also slightly heavier set and fuzzier, but they're smaller and hardier. They can live on less food. And their advantage is they're cold hardy, they're small enough to, to put up with the conditions um, in the Nordic regions, and they survive really well with their adaptations. Then you can look at breeds that have been designed more recently, new world horses, which we called carriage horses, things like the trotters, the standard breads, the Tennessee walkers. And when you look at their genetics of the Tennessee walker, of the carriage horses that we have collapsed into one group, they all overlap very closely. And when you map all the genes, as you see on these reports that we put out, you'll see a graph 
that shows where each different breed clusters on the graph. And you can start to see how the horses are related, where they overlap and where they don't overlap. For instance, thoroughbreds, which have a very lovely defined genetic uh, group because it's been closed stud book for so long and they're very inbred, you can see that they cluster together in this little blue group at the very top of the graph. Whereas the Arabians, who've also been closely bred for a long, long time, they cluster kind of down at the very bottom left of the graph in a red group. So they're completely different, polar opposites. And everybody else is sort of somewhere in between. So this is going to go off the topic a little bit. I'm going to go down a little bit of a rabbit hole. Sure. Okay. We all read King of the Wind when we were kids. The thoroughbreds <laughs> started out as Arabians and got crossed with native stock in Europe to create the modern thoroughbred. Did that mm-hmm. happen a sufficient number of generations ago so that the thoroughbred no longer overlaps with the Arabian? Is that how, or am I completely not understanding what's going on? No, 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 you're right. So, so the, the, the trouble with trying to define ancestry is where in the timeline you look. So, for instance, we have a map now that shows all of the different regions we've defined, the New World or the, the carriage horses versus the Nordic sea ponies versus the thoroughbreds in the British Isles versus the Far East and the Near East, which are, you know, um, in the Arabias. That is a particular point in time. At some point, we will include on the website a timeline that you can toggle back and forth. So you can look at a horse today, and as you go back in time, you'll see where the ancestry traces back from, let's say, the New World, the Americas. Let's say you have a standard bred. And the timeline will show that that horse today comes out of this region. But as you toggle backwards in time, that horse's ancestry is going to go back through Europe and ultimately end up down in the Middle East to the original, the origin of horses, right? So in order to define today's breeds and today's horses with all of the disciplines and different purpose breeding that we've done, you have to pick an origin and it has to be recent enough to represent the diversity of horses today. So if if you go back, go ahead. ahead. If you go back in time, you'll see that horses allegedly all trace back to, you know, an original herd. But if you look in the publications, there seem to be a few original herds and nobody knows yet to date where the domestic horse actually happened. We know that there are ancient horses. We know that there are different types of ancient horses. We suspect they all trace back in time to one original group, but no one has yet confirmed where the domesticated horse actually came from. And there are lots of theories. And of course, everybody believes that all horses came originally from Arabian thoroughbred something and beyond that Arabian. But how far back do you want to go? And does that help you? Does it help you to know that your horse originally came out of a cave you know, in the <laughs> desert? No. <laughs> does it help you to know if you're looking for a horse that you want to do reining or show jumping or some other discipline on, does it help you to know if your horse has kind of got more of a uh, carriage horse, upright, slender trotting disposition or a, you know, shoulders down, hips up, 
I can slide really well this position? Or do you need something that's got a little bit more muscle and bone? If you're going to be doing dressage, you want to see a little bit more of the heavy horse influence in there. That's what we're going for. We're, we are, well, we're interested in, in, in breed. That is not the purpose of this project. The purpose of this project is composition. What does your horse do that you need it to do? And what do you do that your horse needs you to do? So you're really going to go for type. So if we go back to the brown, fluffy horse aged eight that we started out with, and you get your test back and your test says, what, what might it say if I have this generic horse that is of mystery background? What, give me an example of what it might tell me as far as types. What might that piece of paper look like? Sure. So let's say you get mystery horse back and they tell you that it is a paint horse, quarter horse cross. Okay. So I get my composition back and it says that I have about, you know, 39% thoroughbred and um, 15% carriage horse and this much um, heavy, heavy horse and almost no North Sea. Um, And I look at all the average compositions um, that we have calculated for your typical breed. And I see Indeed, that composition does reflect a quarter horse and a paint horse because they're pretty, they're pretty consistent. So you can get a really good idea looking at that and say, hey, this horse does have the composition that I see here as an average composition for a quarter horse or a paint horse. Or you might look at it and go, wait a minute, my horse is 39% Iberian. That does not match a quarter horse or a paint horse. It looks more like a Mustang. I see now. So you're looking at, so typically horse folks like to call talk about type. And when we, when we talk about type, we talk about what we see. That is a quarter horse type. That is a draft type. That is a one yes. type. So what you're doing yep. is doing the same thing, except you're doing it with the genes. That's right. I think I got it. Oh my God. My brain is so tired. <laughs> I knew you could, I knew you'd get this. <laughs> my brain is so tired. So, okay. Now it's making more sense. So whenever you get a report back, it's not going to say that your fluffy red horse, age eight, has a great-great-grandparent who was a Frisian on one side and a great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparent on the other side that was thoroughbred. It's not going to tell us that. No, that is not what the Ancestry thing does. At one point, if we have enough horses in the database... We could go that route and we can certainly say, hey, you've got a cousin over here. Hey, do you want to ride with your your friend over there because this is a sibling of your horse? We can do that. Um, and we can actually even do it at present using just a parentage platform that we designed. But the point is, if you're going to go to Europe and you're going to drop $250,000 on an unknown warm blood foal who is allegedly from two great dressage parents, you probably want to triple check and make sure that that horse is probably composed to be a dressage horse because there are some surprises. Yeah, because there's lots of genes in the in in the pot that might not be uh, presenting themselves, and you just happen to win the lottery and get. I was like, oh man, I got the gene that says right? the horse should have been gated sixty five generations ago. Okay, 
<laughs> well, and there are tricks there. And that ha- that comes back to sort of not just the ancestry, but the diagnostics. Let's say, let's say I go to buy a horse and I'm that person. I wish I was that person who could fly to Europe and pick out a foal, right? And it happens all the time. Okay, I want to buy a really nice dressage horse and I'm going to get a horse that comes from these two dressage horses. They're famous. So obviously this baby's going to be good at dressage. Lo and behold, I find this baby's a show jumper. Well, that's because both parents carried genes for that sort of thing. And that just happens to be what the foal got. Maybe the foal didn't get the dressage composition. Maybe the foal got the show jumping composition. And in stock horses, we call them stock horses, meaning Iberian descent or quarter horse uh, paint horses. We see an awful lot of uh, individual genetic variation that changes the purpose of the horse. For instance, if a horse has a copy of the gene BMRT3, it's been called by some folks a gated gene. It's what's fixed in standard breads. They have two copies of it, and it prevents them from breaking into a canter. That's why they can trot at ridiculously high speeds, because there is a disconnect between the front end and the back end, and it doesn't really... It doesn't lend itself to the canter very easily, but it does lend itself to a very fast, high-speed trot, and in some cases, a very smooth trot. So a lot of gated horses will have a copy of DMRT3, which is great if you've got a sore back, that's the horse you want to ride, but not if you're going to do tempi changes. Not a good thing. A horse with a copy, of, no, you don't, you can't do it. They're going to have a really, really, really hard time if they have a copy or two of DMRT3, they can't do tempi changes, and you may not care about that, but I will. Interesting. So just as, again, we're going down more rabbit holes, I can tell this is going to have to be chopped up into two separate, <laughs> separate uh, things for the interview. Um, so if we, is there just one gene that creates the whole gated things or are there several? Just no. start with that. There's just one. No, there is one right now that's known and DMRT3 has to do with a lot of different things, but gate is one of those. Okay. But we definitely know that there are horses that gate or rack or foxtrot that are negative for DMRT3. So... DMRT3 makes the horse um, sus- likely to be gated, but not necessarily. Okay, is that right? It it was originally called the loss of canter because what it does is it's a neurological, um, for the purpose of this, it's a disconnect between the front end and the back end. And what that means is when the horse is moving, the legs are just a little bit out of coordination. So one foot is always closer to the ground than the other's. And that makes for a really nice smooth ride, but it also makes the coordinating of the front end and the back end for a three-beat canter very, very difficult. Mm -hmm. And that is why they called it loss of canter. They originally found it in horses that do not canter. But we find that while it may not be good for tempi changes or flying lead changes or a three-beat canter, if you're a Western pleasure rider, it looks like it might be a competitive advantage. Oh, don't say that. Oh, all you, everybody who rides Western Pleasure, send your hate mail to Jennifer at horseradionetwork.com. Can we please let our horses lope? Thank you. End of story. Um, so. Well, and this, what, is, this is a thing, right? How many people in the certain various disciplines get beat up by other disciplines saying you torture your horse into doing that when we know that certain horses hit the ground and do what it is they're bred to do? Right. Um. But so in the gated gene part, would you ever, under normal circumstances, barring random genetic change because things are always evolving, would you ever find an Arabian that has a gene that says it could be gated? I don't know. Um, I would not be 
horribly shocked. Do I think it originated in, in the Arabians? I probably not. We've seen things originate in Arabian horses today that were, for the longest time, said not to be true. For instance, color. There's always that group of folk out there who say, well, true Arabians, true bred Arabians don't have any white markings. They are all bay. They're all red. They're all black. They do not have white markings. Well, we find a ton of novel whites in Arabians, and they did orig- it did originate there. So, so is, <laughs> is the theory right now that the gated gene is something that came about in the horse as a species more recently versus were there gated horses 5,000 years ago? Um, you know, the right person to ask about that would be Dr. Samantha Brooks. My my take on that would, I, I don't think it's a new thing. I think it's been around, like Tabiano. Tabiano's been around for a long time. There are cave paintings with horses with spots. Yeah. So it's been around. It wouldn't surprise me. And DMRT3 exists in other mammals. Oh, I didn't. It well, that tells us mice. a lot, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yep. You can see it in other animals. Interesting. So maybe people, this is common amongst horse folks, who are naturally klutzy, it's genetic. <laughs> That's the, I'm just putting that out there to the universe. Hey, I'm, I'm going with that. That works for me. I can't do it. It's genetic. I can't be on that treadmill or do that workout because, you know, it's hard for me. I cannot use the rowing machine. It's genetic. <laughs> oh, yeah. It makes me kind of nauseous, the rowing machine. <laughs> there we go. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion, and I think I could probably suck up a couple more hours of your afternoon, uh, Krista, but fascinating <laughs> stuff. First of all, how you're making it happen, and second of all, all of the great information and questions because it, it every time you talk about something there's just as many questions as there are answers so somebody wants to learn more about genetic testing what they can learn from their horse why that might be useful um, where can they find out more they are always welcome to call us anybody who tests with us well knows that we are very chatty <laughs> we love to chat with our clients we like to talk through their reports with them we like to explain what our findings are and we really above and beyond that we want to know what they think about it our reports show you the genetic variants but we understand that this is sort of a new thing to a lot of people and can be really hard to understand so we are always responding to requests and comments and feedback on how to better translate what this means Moreover, what it means to you. So let's say you get a result for um, IMN. That's big in the quarter horses right now. It's pretty new. And a lot of people don't know what it means. And a lot of veterinarians don't know how to respond to it. So what we try to do is be proactive, work with the clients, work with the veterinarians, and, and communicate. What do you see? This is what we saw in the variation. And when we looked at the variant in the gene, we saw that the horse came up positive for IMM. What are you seeing? Does it have wasting disease? Does it have a problem when it's vaccinated? Tell me. We need to know because we need to strengthen this research. Together, we can find out the answers. So we're always available. You can always reach us either via email, info at edelondx.com, or just pick up the phone and call. And the number is 650-380-2995. And we are always willing to reach out to you. And um, we love to see your horses. We love to talk about your horses and discover more. 